guess what, everyone? Yours truly just got accepted to the Electoral College. However, I'm having a hard time finding out where campus is exactly. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, hey, Dr. Matt, the Electoral College isn't an actual college. You'd be correct. But surprisingly, there are more than a few people that don't know that. It's really it's time for me to open a can of common sense on this most important topic. And that is what today's show is all about. Hey there, America. Welcome once again to the Common Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matt. And if this is your first time tuning in, I sincerely want to welcome you and thank you for uh, checking, this out, checking us out today. So today, 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 we are going to be discussing, we're going to be discussing a very important topic. And we're going to be actually talking about all things pertaining to the Electoral College and hopefully helping people better understand why it is so fundamental to our election process and why it is very much needed in 2020 and, unfortunately, what is being done to eliminate it. So, what the heck is this thing called the Electoral College? Maybe you don't know. A lot of Americans don't have an idea. Maybe, you know, you don't really care, but you should. And if you do know what it is, I'm hoping that you'll learn a little something extra as we talk about it today. I mean, after all, several of the Democratic candidates running for president in 2020 have already expressed concerns about it, and they actually want to abolish it. They want to get rid of it. Of note, I should mention that Good old Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg have been on record saying that they want to abolish it. But don't take it from me. Let's listen to them exactly in their own words. I believe we need a constitutional amendment that protects the right to vote for every American citizen and to make sure that vote gets counted. We need to put some federal muscle behind that. And we need to repeal every one of the voter suppression laws that is out there right now. And I'll tell you one more. We need to make sure that every vote counts. And, and I want to I push that right here in Mississippi, because I think this is an important point. You know, come a general election, presidential candidates don't come to places like Mississippi. Yeah. They also don't come to places like California and Massachusetts, right? Because we're not the battleground states. Well, my view is that every vote matters. And the way we can make that happen... is that we can have national voting, and that means get rid of the electoral college and Wrong answer, yep. Senator Warren. 
we'll get into why she's completely wrong on that. But before we do that, let's listen to Mayor Pete. At risk of sounding a little simplistic, one thing I believe is that in an American presidential election, the person who gets the most votes ought to be the person who wins. This is our democracy. I get that we're a representative republic and not a direct democracy. And I can see my Twitter mentions blowing up right now with people reminding me we're not a direct democracy. I know. (laughs) But if we're not a democratic society, what are we? And if we can't come together with everybody having an equal vote over who the leader of our country is going to be, how can we say that we're a democratic society? We ought to make sure that everybody has the same Voice. In Indiana, where I live, because our state's very conservative, most years we have no voice at all in the presidential process. The same is true for some big states and some small states, some because they're liberal, some because they're conservatives, all of them disfranchised and without a voice in the presidential process. So, so wrong, Mayor Pete. And again, we'll get into why that is. Both Senator Warren and Mayor Pete are very crafty in the words they choose. And they are selling you a bunch of malarkey. But before we get into that, let's talk about something that I found very interesting. Um, There was an audio clip I found while I was researching for the show uh, of someone going out and asking college students um, about... I'll just let the clip speak for itself, but they were talking about the Electoral College and uh, what should happen to students and faculty if Elizabeth Warren is actually able to abolish the Electoral College. Let's take a listen. Do you know what the Electoral College is? No, I don't, honestly. But honestly, with anything, with taking anything away from the colleges is honestly messed up to begin with because that's taken away from our our own um, education, basically. We're here in St. Augustine. We're going to find out how many young voters actually think the Electoral College is a real school. So Elizabeth Warren has come out saying that she wants to abolish the Electoral College. What do you guys think the students who go there, what are they supposed to do? Where are they supposed to go? I have no idea. Yes, they have nowhere to go. (laughs) So since they can't go to the Electoral College, where do you recommend that they go? Community college? I have no idea. I don't know. Somewhere else, if there is anywhere. All right. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. (laughs) This is going to be good. So Elizabeth Warren recently came out and said she wants to get rid of the Electoral College. What do you think the professors who work at the Electoral College are supposed to do? I don't know too much about it, but I do not believe that they should remove them. Um, I mean, it's it's maybe because what I was, you know, taught by my parents. Um, So I don't don't think they should, period. What do you think? Should the professors at the Electoral College get placed somewhere else to work? Um, I believe so. So the students that go there won't be able to attend that college anymore. Instead of the Electoral College, what college should they go to instead? Um, to be honest, I don't really know. I'm not into, like, politics like that, but I I don't really know. What would the professors do? Where do you think the professors should go teach instead of the Electoral College? Uh, I don't don't know. (laughs) We all don't know, but I believe, uh, like, we're not into politics or Electoral Wars, but I believe they should 
go what's best for them. Uh, also, uh, people in big positions, like, what was it again? The Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, she should be looking out for the people, you know, putting people in the best positions to, you know, do their jobs. You shouldn't get rid of schools that students attend, right? Yeah. She, oh, don't do that. Yeah, you can't do, you can't do that. Yeah. No place to make money, no place to you know, do what they're supposed to do, be teachers. So. Elizabeth Warren wants to get rid of the Electoral College. Uh -huh. What should the students who go to that college do? Where should they go? I, I'm not going to, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so she wants to get rid of the Electoral College. The students go there. What school do you think they should go to? I, you picked the wrong person. I'm not kidding. I'm not shit about this. What's your favorite school? None. <laughs> well, just to let you know, the Electoral College is our voting system here in the United States, and no students go to it. Yeah, okay, I was like, I don't participate. In, I don't know <laughs> so Elizabeth Warren came out and said she wants to get rid of the Electoral College. Where would you guys suggest the professors who work there go instead? Oh, I'm not too educated on any of that, so I don't really have an opinion as far as that. You don't have an opinion on if we got rid of the Electoral College, where the students that attend there and the professors that teach there should go? Not really, because I'm not sure what the effect of that would be, so I don't have an opinion either way. What's your favorite school? Where would you suggest that the professors from the Electoral College go? Oh, I'm not sure. Do you have a favorite college? <laughs> Flagler. <laughs> <No>. Flagler? <laughs> okay. Do you have a suggestion for the students who currently go there? Where they could go instead? I honestly don't. I don't attend college or anything like that, so... Just, Do you know where the Electoral College is? Nope. I have no idea about any of that stuff. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> What's your favorite college that we could recommend for them to go to? I'd say Flagler, maybe. Where should the students go when they get rid of the Electoral College? What's the Electoral College? The Electoral College is a school. Okay. Um, to another school? I'm not sure. Where do you think they should go instead? Do you have a favorite college? Oh, um, UF is a good school. Yeah. I go to St. John's, so a community college probably. Yeah. Well, do you know where the Electoral College is located? What if I told you that that's actually a system that our government has? to put votes in place, and it's not a real college. Oh, I know that. What's the Electoral College? She wants to get rid of the Electoral College. Do you think it's fair for a politician to get rid of a college where people go to school? Um, no. What do you think that has to say for the professors that work there? I honestly have no idea. What do you... Do you know where the Electoral College is located? Vaguely, yeah. In Florida? I'm not sure. Where is it located? Yeah, where is it? You don't know where the electoral, you've never heard of it. So Elizabeth Warren recently came out and said she wants to get rid of the electoral college. Do you think it's fair for those students to have to quit school and go somewhere else? No, probably not. Yeah, no. Do you guys have a suggestion that you could give them since they won't be able to go to the electoral college anymore where they could go instead? No, I don't really know very much about it, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Do you have a suggestion for where those students could go instead? I honestly wish I knew about the Electoral College and I paid attention in my social studies class because I didn't at all. I didn't care about it. So if you want to explain the Electoral College to me real quick, that'd be perfect. Do you know that it's not a real school? Mm-mm. I didn't know. I just didn't even know it was a thing. Do you think that the way people live in California represents the way people live in Oklahoma or Kansas? No, not at all. 
That's why the Electoral College exists. Gotcha. So what's scary about this is it's kind of a social experiment to see if young people just take anything anybody says and runs with it. They don't question anything. It's like they don't have critical thinking skills anymore. Do you know what it was? We couldn't trick her. Are you a conservative? Yes. That's why you knew what it was. Do you ladies have a suggestion for where are the students who currently go there, where they could go instead when she gets rid of it? I know. I don't know. You guys know where the Electoral College is located? No. Have you ever heard of it? Nope. Sorry. Do you have a favorite college? Flagler. I don't know. Yeah. Have you guys ever taken like a American history class or a political science class there? A very long time ago. And they never taught you about the Electoral College? No. <laughs> Do you think it's appropriate for her to shut down a school? Where are the other students going to go? Um, I'm sorry. What is this about? The Electoral College. Elizabeth Warren, she's running for president. She wants to get rid of it. Do you think that's appropriate yeah, for that's her? That's unjust, to be honest. I, I believe that's an unjust move on her part. Yeah. Um, me, I'm... Where do you go to school? Vanguard. Okay. What if she went and got rid of your school? Would that be fair? No. No, not at all. Do you think that's fair to the student to attend that school? No, I don't, I don't agree with that. I agree. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like... You think that. that we should get rid of the Electoral College and displace those students? No. Do you think that's fair for her to displace students out of their college? No, not at all, especially when they've already started. I mean, no. I mean, that's what college, you're talking about like college dorms, right? The Electoral College. Oh yeah, no, I don't mean, I don't really know much about this, but. Do you guys know where the Electoral College is located? Mm, no, I don't. Do you know what the Electoral College is? No, I don't, honestly. But honestly, with anything, with taking anything away from the colleges is honestly messed up to begin with because that's taken away from our our own um, education, basically. Do you guys know how the president is elected? Um, most, for the most part, yes. Yeah, they, you just run for election, like, I don't know. Like, do you know how he's voted for? Who votes for him? Do you know how many votes he has to win by? No. Probably a whole lot. 270 electoral votes from the Electoral College. So the school, the Electoral College is not a school. Did you guys know anything about that? No. Have you seen? No, I, thought you were, I thought it was yeah, like you were saying as a different name. No. Like, so did you know? Did you know about the electoral college at all? <laughs> did you know it wasn't a school? Yes. For some, yeah. For someone that doesn't know that it's a college, it's kind of like yeah, you're not really paying attention yeah. to. And then they give me suggestions of where the students should go instead. Yeah. Are these yours? Okay, well, you raised them right. They're smart. It's a sad day when high school students know that the Electoral College isn't a real college, but college students don't know. That's right, y'all. That was my brain exploding after listening to that. These are college-educated students, supposedly, that have no idea what the what the Electoral College is, and it just shocked me the first time I heard that. So... Okay, let's let's bring it back in because what we need to do is we need to kind of regroup 
and we need to have um, a quick little civics lesson. And luckily, I have a wonderful clip here for you um, by Tara Ross. This is uh, actually a very simple overview of the Electoral College and talks about some key points of why it's important and what can happen without it. Um, this is actually from her PragerU video, and it is fantastic. I want to talk to you about the Electoral College and why it matters. All right, I know this doesn't sound like the most sensational topic of the day, but stay with me because I promise you it's one of the most important. To explain why requires a very brief civics review. The President and Vice President of the United States are not chosen by a nationwide popular vote of the American people. Rather, they are chosen by 538 electors. This process is spelled out in the United States Constitution. Why didn't the founders just make it easy? and let the presidential candidate with the most votes claim victory? Why did they create, and why do we continue to need this electoral college? The answer is critical to understanding not only the electoral college, but also America. The founders had no intention of creating a pure majority rule democracy. They knew from careful study of history what most have forgotten today or never learned. Pure democracies do not work. They implode. Democracy has been colorfully described as two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner. In a pure democracy, bare majorities can easily tyrannize the rest of a country. The founders wanted to avoid this at all costs. This is why we have three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. It's why each state has two senators, no matter what its population, but also different numbers of representatives based entirely on population. It's why it takes a supermajority in Congress and three quarters of the states to change the Constitution. And it's why we have the Electoral College. Here's how the Electoral College works. The presidential election happens in two phases. The first phase is purely democratic. We hold 51 popular elections every presidential election year, one in each state and one in DC. On election day in 2012, you may have thought you were voting for Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, but you were really voting for a slate of presidential electors. In Rhode Island, for example, if you voted for Barack Obama, you voted for the state's four Democratic electors. If you voted for Mitt Romney, you were really voting for the state's four Republican electors. Part two of the election is held in December, and it is this December election among the state's 538 electors not the November election, which officially determines the identity of the next president. At least 270 votes are needed to win. Why is this so important? Because the system encourages coalition building and national campaigning. In order to win, a candidate must have the support of many different types of voters from various parts of the country. Winning only the South or the Midwest is not good enough. You cannot win 270 electoral votes if only one part of the country is supporting you. But if winning were only about getting the most votes, a candidate might concentrate all of his efforts in the biggest cities or the biggest states. Why would that candidate care about what people in West Virginia or Iowa or Montana think? But you might ask, isn't the election really only about the so-called swing states? Actually, no. If nothing else, safe and swing states are constantly changing. California voted safely Republican as recently as 1988. Texas used to vote Democrat. Neither New Hampshire nor Virginia used to be swing states. 
Most people think that George W. Bush won the 2000 election because of Florida. Well, sort of. But he really won the election because he managed to flip one state which the Democrats thought was safe, West Virginia. Its four electoral votes turned out to be decisive. No political party can ignore any state for too long without suffering the consequences. Every state, and therefore every voter in every state, is important. The Electoral College also makes it harder to steal elections. Votes must be stolen in the right state in order to change the outcome of the Electoral College. With so many swing states, this is hard to predict and hard to do. But without the Electoral College, any vote stolen in any precinct in the country could affect the national outcome, even if that vote was easily stolen in the bluest California precinct or the reddest Texas one. The Electoral College is an ingenious method of selecting a president for a great, diverse republic such as our own. It protects against the tyranny of the majority, encourages coalition building, and discourages voter fraud. Our founders were proud of it. We can be too. I'm Tara Ross for Prager University. There's only one thing to say after listening to that. Now, what I want to to highlight there is we need to well we need to break it down, okay? And as a part of of this show, I reached out to some friends online, and uh, I do have to give a quick shout out to one of those friends, Mr. Tanner Lawrence, who did a fantastic job in giving me some very key points that he thought would be beneficial to everyone when it comes to electoral college, and and so you understand it was actually created as an agreement during the drafting of the U.S. Constitution. And at the time, many of the drafters, as with many of the topics, were trying different things. They were thinking about different things they'd like to try and do. And and many of the drafters initially thought and wanted Congress to be the one that elected the president. But others said, no, 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 we need to, we need to let the people have a say. And those people were proposing to have a national popular vote, which is kind of where people are trying to push us to right now. But what happened was that there were some states, such as Delaware and Rhode Island, that felt that it was unfair and that they would lack representation in the national vote due to their limited population. See, the idea was for each state to hold their own individual election that would add to the total number of votes for a presidential candidate. And it took a few meetings, but in the end, even James Madison, who was from Virginia, and at the time that was the most populous state, agreed with this line of thinking. And additionally, it really honestly fits in perfectly with our Tenth Amendment, which states that powers not regulated by the federal government are reserved to the states. Another benefit of the Electoral College that was was pointed out in Tara's audio clip there is that large cities cannot dominate the election results. And it was even mentioned in the clip with the college students. You know, why on earth should someone in California dictate how someone in Montana or Kansas lives or, you know, in Florida or Texas, you know, someone in the middle of Nebraska? I mean, that's not right. So by having the Electoral College, it really um, takes away the power from the most populous cities and, and states and actually gives a fair representation to those smaller states and cities. Um, And in the end, it gives a voice to all Americans who are registered to vote and who exercise that right. 
So how does it all work? Okay, I mean this is this is important. You understand the, the the kind of the inner mechanics of this. And like Tara stated, that you know every four years we hold a presidential election, and it happens in two phases. The first is completely one hundred percent democratic. People should applaud that wholeheartedly. And what we do is we hold fifty-one popular elections, one for each state and the District of Columbia. When each American citizen exercises their constitutional right to vote, they are voting for the electors for the candidate that they want to be president. As an example, in 2016, when citizens went to the polls in Ohio, where I live, if they voted for President Trump, they were actually voting for the 18 Republican electors in that state. If, however, they voted for Hillary Clinton, they were voting for the 18 Democrat electors in that state. Now, the second part of the election does indeed take place in December when the 538 electors gather to cast their votes, and the winner of the election is the candidate who gets 270 electoral votes, which is just one past halfway. So basically, if you get 269, well, actually 270 is what you need because, again, that's over the halfway mark, then that determines who the, who the president is going to be. Now, one question I had, and I did not know the answer prior to this, was how are these electors appointed? And if you want to know that, I've got the answer for you right here. You see, the states are appointed their total electoral votes based upon the what the legislative branch does. And in each state, they get two votes, one for each of the senators. That, so all, all the states have two senators. They get two votes for those. Additionally, they get more votes based upon the number of members that they have in the House of Representatives. And that is based upon the state's population. And it changes every 10 years when the federal government conducts the nationwide census. Guess what? 2020 is a census year, so there will be some changes coming up once that census is complete. As an example, Virginia has 11 members in the House of Representatives and two senators for a total of 13 electoral votes. And, you know, again, with the census coming up and those results, we will see possibly some changes, just like in 2010. Um, in fact, in that year, New York, big old, big old... New York, I won't say liberal, but in my opinion it is, <laughs> um, New York actually lost or decreased by two electoral votes, and Florida increased by two electoral votes. So it must have been in 2010 there were a lot of people retiring from New York to Florida, I guess. I don't know what the cause that was other than there was a change in the population size in both states. Now, currently there are 33 states that choose electors by party convention. And then there are seven states and the District of Columbia that select their electors by state party committees. The remaining 10 states use gubernatorial appointments, appointment by party nominees, state chair appointments, presidential nominee appointments, and hybrid methods for their elector selection. And the typical qualifications for a presidential elector include current membership in the party, current voter registration, and a pledge to vote for the party's presidential ticket. And no matter the selection method, a slate of alternatives usually are selected in case electors are deemed unable to fulfill their duties. So that's a lot of history and a lot of what kind of goes into the mechanics. But honestly, you know, what are the benefits of the Electoral College? You know, we heard Elizabeth Warren talk about every vote counts and, and how if we, you know, under the current system, uh, presidential candidates are not going to come to states like Mississippi, and you heard the, the loud applause. And, you know, that's right. They don't come. They don't care. Well, that's not true. And in, under this system, they actually have more representation than if you went to a national popular vote. And I'll explain why here shortly. But thanks to the Electoral College, presidential candidates have to focus on every state 
as opposed to appealing to cities or states with the largest populations. They just do. And the candidates have to consider more issues that appeal to specific states, and therefore they need a strong platform that fits the values of many states and thus many Americans. They can't just go to California, New York, Florida, Texas, and spend all their time and money there and ignore everyone else. Because if you have limited resources, which even though they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on these, on these campaigns, if the vote was determined by the population, and I'll get into the numbers here shortly, they're not going to spend their time in Mississippi, in the middle of the country, in Nebraska, and Montana, the Dakotas, you know, even Ohio. I mean, well, Ohio is pretty populous, but you get what I'm saying. They are going to, under a popular vote, a big popularity contest, they're going to spend their time where the most people are concentrated at. That just makes sense. So don't, don't be deceived. Don't be, don't be lied to. A popular vote will not increase your uh, exposure to these candidates. They're going to just ignore you unless you're from one of those big, big states or big, big cities where they can get a lot of bang for their buck. So under the Electoral College, like Tara said again, you know, any vote could be stolen in any precinct of the country. You know, I mean, that's really, you know, what we're dealing with under a popular vote. You know, with the Electoral College, voter fraud is very much more difficult because in order for a vote to be stolen with the Electoral College, it has to be done in the right state in order to change the outcome of the election. And that takes a lot of calculation. It's hard to do that. Many of the swing states... Uh, this would be very hard to predict and even harder to do because, again, those change. You know, one year, a certain state may be a swing state, another year, another one, or in another year, none of them will be. So they, they do change, again, based upon the ingenuity and the, the amazingness of the Electoral College. So under the Electoral College, guys, the, one of the biggest benefits is that every state and therefore every citizen's vote is truly important. It completely protects against the tyranny of the majority it promotes coalition building, and it discourages voter fraud. A national popular vote could not and would not be able to do that. But sadly, as you may or may not know, there is a, well, I call it an insidious attempt and a plan in place to undermine the Electoral College. And if we aren't careful, if we're, if we're really not careful, um... We may lose it, and with that, we may lose. Uh, we may lose who we are as Americans. So I'll uh, get into that after the break. So everyone, before we get into the next phase of what we're talking about here, I want to share with you some good news, and I'm happy to report to you that the Common Sense Podcast is on the move and ready for the next phase of growth. The show is no longer being hosted by Buzzsprout, but instead we've moved it over to Podbean, and I could not be more happy about this. Now, the reason I'm happy about this is because if you're enjoying the show as much as I hope you are, we would love to give each of you a chance to be more involved. And I'm sure many of you are already wondering, uh, how can I be more involved? Well, what I need you to do to get involved is I 
a couple things. One, I want you to download the Podbean podcast app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. And then be sure to subscribe to this show, Common Sense Podcast. You can easily find it by doing a search for the Common Sense Podcast. It'll be about three-fourths of the way down the page, right below where where your where did your common sense go? That's one show. And right above the common sense psychic. Now, I don't know how I know that. I didn't necessarily maybe do this myself, but you know, once you found the show, click on the show name. This will open the show's page in Podbean. And from there, the first thing I want you to do, and this is this is so important, I want you to click that green follow button. We want you to follow the show. Okay, that's where you want to get all the updates on the current episodes and whatnot. And secondly, and most importantly, I want you to go right next door to that green button and click the red button, and uh, it says "Be a Patron." This will open a new page, where, a new web page, actually, where you can read all about how you personally can get involved with and support the show. Now, right now, as we are launching this kind of crowdfunding way to be a part of the show, there are three ways and you can support the show, and there's something for everyone. So no matter which one you choose, there are some great perks and benefits that come with each. So in review, I want you to download the Podbean app from whatever app store you need to go to. I want you to do a search for Common Sense Podcast. I want you to follow the show, and then I also want you to become a patron. That would really help us grow, guys, and it would help us to continue to produce great content and offer all kinds of wonderful perks and benefits to you. So that being said, let's get back to the show. Now, Tara did an excellent job at the beginning of the show <clears throat> explaining what the Electoral College is. And I want to just let her have a chance to talk once again about, you know, the Electoral College versus the, the popular vote and really what the consequences are. So I'm going to turn it over to her right now. In every presidential election, only one question matters. Which candidate will get the 270 votes needed to win the Electoral College? Our founders so deeply feared a tyranny of the majority that they rejected the idea of a direct vote for president. That's why they created the Electoral College. For more than two centuries, it has encouraged coalition building, given a voice to both big and small states, and discouraged voter fraud. Unfortunately, there is now a well-financed, below-the-radar effort to do away with the Electoral College. It is called National Popular Vote, or NPV, and it wants to do exactly what the founders rejected, award the job of president to the person who gets the most votes nationally. Even if you agree with this goal, it's hard to agree with their method. Rather than amend the Constitution, which they have no chance of doing, NPV plans an end run around it. Here's what NPV does. It asks states to sign a contract to give their presidential electors to the winner of the national popular vote instead of the winner of the state's popular vote. What does that mean in practice? It means that if NPV had been in place in 2004, for example, when George W. Bush won the national vote, California's electoral votes would have gone to Bush, even though John Kerry won that state by 1.2 million votes. Can you imagine strongly Democratic California calmly awarding its electors to a Republican? Another problem with NPV's plan is that it robs states of their sovereignty. A key benefit of the Electoral College system is that it decentralizes control over the election. 
Currently, a presidential election is really 51 separate elections, one in each state and one in D.C. These 51 separate processes exist side by side in harmony. They do not and cannot interfere with each other. California's election code applies only to California and determines that state's electors. So a vote cast in Texas can never change the identity of a California elector. NPV would disrupt this careful balance. It would force all voters into one national election pool. Thus, a vote cast in Texas will always affect the outcome in California. And the existence of a different election code in Texas always has the potential to unfairly affect a voter in California. Why? Because state election codes can differ drastically. States have different rules about early voting, registering to vote, and qualifying for the ballot. They have different policies regarding felon voting. They have different triggers for recounts. Each and every one of these differences is an opportunity for someone, somewhere, to file a lawsuit claiming unfair treatment. Why should a voter in New York get more or less time to early vote than a voter in Florida? Why should a hanging Chad count in Florida, but not in Ohio? The list of possible complaints is endless. And think of the opportunities for voter fraud if NPV is passed. Currently, an attempt to steal a presidential election requires phony ballots to appear or real ballots to disappear in the right state or combination of states, something that is very hard to anticipate. But with NPV, voter fraud anywhere can change the election results. No need to figure out which states you must swing, just add or subtract the votes you need or don't want wherever you can most easily get away with it. And finally, if NPV is adopted and winning is only about getting the most votes, a candidate might concentrate all of his efforts in the biggest cities or the biggest states. We could see the end of presidential candidates who care about the needs and concerns of people in smaller states or outside of big cities. Here's why all of this is of so much concern. NPV is more than halfway to its goal. NPV's contract will go into effect when states with a combined 270 electoral votes have signed. To date, NPV already has the support of 10 states plus DC. Together, that's 165 electoral votes, leaving only 105 votes to go. It is time to stop this attempt to undo the way American presidents are elected, which will in turn undo America. The people behind NPV think they are wiser than every generation of Americans that preceded them. They aren't. Tara did an amazing job, like I knew she would. She really, really hit it out of the ballpark when it came to explaining the dangers of the NPV or the national uh, popular vote, as she put it. But there's a few things I want to kind of add on to what she said, because this really is a sneaky way to essentially circumvent the Constitution by exploiting a backdoor weakness of the Electoral College. So whether you know it or not, the Constitution allows states to choose how they want to distribute their electoral votes. Okay? So the state, the, the electoral votes that are allocated to them, they can allocate them however they want. And most of the states currently award all of their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the popular vote in their state. This method of awarding electoral votes is commonly known as the, quote, winner-take-all. 
So even if a presidential candidate wins only 51% of the popular vote in the winner-take-all state, he or she is awarded 100% of the electoral votes. Now, currently, 48 out of the 50 U.S. states and Washington, D.C. apply this winner-take-all approach. There's only two states that award their electoral votes in a different manner, and those are Nebraska and Maine. You see, these states allocate their electoral votes by congressional district. In other words, instead of distributing all of their electoral votes to the candidate who wins the statewide popular vote, both Nebraska and Maine award an electoral vote to the winner of each congressional district. The winner of the statewide vote gets two additional electoral votes, and this method is called the Congressional District Model. Maine has used it since 1972, and Nebraska is the new kid on the block because they just started using it way back in 1996. Now, the U.S. Constitution does require states to appoint electors. The document is very silent when it comes to actually the awarding of those presidential, of those electoral votes in in the election. And there have been numerous, numerous proposals on how to circumvent the winner-take-all method of awarding electoral votes. The Constitution leaves the matter of the electoral vote distribution up to the states. And all it says is, in the actual Constitution, it says that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. Now, the key phrase pertaining to the distribution of electoral votes is obvious, where it says, in such manner as the legislature may, uh, therefore may direct. So far, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled the state's role in awarding electoral votes is supreme, so the states get 100% of the say in how that, in how that happens. And that right there, again, is this backdoor that they're exploiting with the NPV, okay? The national popular vote basically is, what it does is, like Tara said, it requires participating states to pass laws that would allocate their electoral votes to the uh, winner of the national popular vote. Now, I have another name for this besides the NPV. I call it the Low Down, Dirty, and Sneaky Compact, Okay. So this agreement that is, you know, Tara talked about, I think she said there were 10 states at the time that had already signed this into law, and, and the, the clip I played from her, that second one there, was actually a little bit old, okay? Uh, as of, uh, I believe, April of this year, or of, I'm sorry, April of 2019, um, there's not 10 states that have actually turned, approved and passed this into law, but there's 14 states and the District of Columbia, and currently, the total number of electoral votes that they have is 189 of the required 270 electoral votes. Now, here's the, the part that, that is the problem, and she did mention this. The NPV does not require approval by all 50 states and the District of Columbia to take effect. It's important that you understand that in order for them to get this into play, to make this going for the whole country is all they need is enough states with electoral votes to to total 270 of the 538, okay? So the same number that it takes to win the presidency under the Electoral College, if enough states sign up for this and make it law and those total electoral votes equal 270, boom, the rest of us are done. It goes into effect 
And that's the rub. Millions of Americans will be disenfranchised. Millions of Americans' voice will be completely shut out because the electoral vote, or sorry, the electoral college will be no more. I mean, it'll still be there, but this NPV will take precedent. So you can see why I feel that this is really kind of a low down and dirty tactic. Now, I mentioned 14 states that have adopted this into law. Just so you know who those are, it's California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. And if you kind of think about the geography of where those 14 states are at, outside of Colorado, New Mexico, and Illinois, they're the coasts, which traditionally are very liberal, very progressive, very left, very Democrat. Okay. Obviously, Illinois is in there because of Chicago. Colorado has been progressing its way towards a more left-leaning state. And we know that New Mexico has been pretty liberal for for quite some time. Now, out of the other states that are left, just so you know, some of them actually have passed the compact in just one legislative chamber, but not both. Now, in order to make this law, they have to pass it in both legislative chambers in their state. So it needs both to pass or actually become law. The states where it's just been one chamber, where it's been passed in just one chamber, include North Carolina, Michigan, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Arizona, Nevada, Oregon, and Maine. Okay? Just so you know, if these eight states make the compact law, if they, if they, or the MPV, I should say, if the MPV law goes into effect, they would have 261 electoral votes. Okay, so now they'd be at 261. And what's the magic number to take away the electoral college rights of everyone in the country? 270. So they'd literally be nine votes away. So next group of states we need to talk about are states where they've had at least one legislative hearing, but it's not passed yet. So these are states that are kind of talking about it. And just so you're aware, if you live in one of these states, you want to know kind of where they're at in this whole process. And those include New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Missouri, Wisconsin, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Minnesota, Utah, and Alaska. And again, if you listen to kind of the, if you think about the geography of those states, that's pretty much the middle of the country for the most part. You know, it's kind of moving from New England and taking in the center of the country, the middle America, the ones that this podcast is really geared toward, you know, the people that kind of feel alone and frustrated because all they hear is, you know, the leftist agenda from the coasts and the mainstream media and things, those kinds of things. So, so, you know, those states, guys, it's being considered. It's being talked about in the legislature, but it hasn't passed, you know, either one yet. Now, outside of what's left, there are 10 states that currently have not heard anything in any legislative branch with regards to the MPV. Top of the list, Virginia, but I don't think that's going to be the case much longer. If you know it or not, Virginia has, is being, basically, there's a power grab. Uh, in this last local election, the Democrats took over, the progressive Democrats, the leftist Democrats. And as I like to call him, Governor Blackface and his band of merry progressive leftists are pushing hard to uh, make some serious changes in that state. And they want to turn it as blue as can be. 
besides Virginia, there's South Carolina, Florida, Mississippi, Texas, Indiana, Kansas, Iowa, Wyoming, and Idaho. So that's kind of where all the states sit in their um, support or, or adoption of the NPV. Now, as far as the people that are pushing this, that are, that are excited about it, that support it, well, the primary group advocating for the NPV is surprisingly called National Popular Vote Incorporated. Besides and besides and National Popular Popular Vote Incorporated, my goodness, another uh, electoral reform organization known as Fair Note has listed groups that support the MPV already, and surprisingly, it's the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, the League of Women Voters U.S., and the Sierra Club. And then on top of that, we've got some um, some newspapers that. Uh, support this as well, including the Boston Globe, LA Times, and the New York Times. What a shock that mainstream media is uh, in support of something that would take away the rights of the majority of Americans. Okay, so why do people support this? Well, the people that are behind this, what they're bullet points are that they say is one that they believe that the current state laws regarding electoral votes discourage presidential candidates from speaking to most voters. And this is an all out lie. Okay. They're trying to tell you that under the electoral college, it encourages presidential candidates to only deal with, you know, um, the competitive states and, and the proof quote unquote that they use is the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections. In both of those, um, Mitt Romney and Donald Trump deployed significant resources to, at the time, what were 12 competitive states in each election. Okay, Now, it's interesting to note that there were 12 competitive states during those two elections. But under a national popular vote system, rather than there being 12 competitive states, there'd only be nine. So I'm not sure why they're pushing this other than the fact that they're lying to you. And where did I get the number nine from? Well, just so happens I did a little math. And the states of California, Texas, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, and North Carolina, if you take their state populations of the people within those states, the total number of voting citizens is around 167 million 919,277. If you take the remaining states, so everyone besides those nine, the total number of voting citizens in the rest of the country and the District of Columbia is 160,130,015 voting citizens. So in those nine, there's more than 7 million people. So guys, if this goes into effect, if you do not live in California, Texas, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, or North Carolina, you can say bye-bye to any candidate paying attention to you. That's why the MPV is not good. Now, I will say that supporters of the, of the, the NPV also point to another thing that they say is their selling point. That they say, what they say is that the current electoral voting system allows second place finishers in the national vote to win the presidency. 
and they talk about 2000 and 2016. You know, in 2000, George W. Bush, he he won uh, due to the Electoral College, although he didn't win the national popular vote. And then again in 2016, Hillary Clinton was beaten by President Trump in the same instance. Now, let's look at the most recent election in 2016, okay? If we go from 2016 back to the first presidential election, there's been a total of 58 elections for president of the United States. And out of those 58 elections, there's only been four presidents that lost the popular vote, but one due to the Electoral College. Doing a little math, that equates out to about 6.9% of the time that a candidate loses the popular vote but wins the presidency through the Electoral College, only 6.9% of the time. So the number of times that this happens is very, very small. But yet they want you to throw out the entire system and switch everything up to go to a national popular vote. Honestly, what it's about... It's about power. It's about power. The leftists and the the liberals and the progressive the progressive left, they're upset that their candidate didn't win, basically. You know, in most recently in 2016. They're upset that Hillary didn't win. And because of that, they're coming up with everything they can to basically upset the institution and get what they want. Now, is there any opposition to this? Well, yes, there is. We mentioned that Connecticut was a state that has passed this into law. They did it back in 2018. And it did, when it passed, it generated a variety of arguments from, the, you know, from, from people. In fact, at the time, the Republican uh, state senator, Tony Boucher, argued that the previous system with the Electoral College Benefited, benefited the state due to its small population of 3,563,077 people. Boucher and the other Republicans suggested that few presidential candidates would visit Connecticut when resources could be used in states with larger populations, which is kind of the point that I outlined earlier before. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. Why go someplace where there's not a huge population? In addition to uh, the senator there, State Representative Gail Lavelle also Republican, noted that Connecticut's electors may be required to cast ballots against the wishes of the state voters, depending on the winner of the national popular vote. So again, under the NPV, California or Florida or Texas would basically determine what the rest of us have to do because they have a large population. That's not right. That's not fair, okay? The Electoral College is amazing, guys. It's absolutely amazing. And it is fair. It's what our founders put down after much thought and studying history and looking at what has worked over large swaths of time. So, is all lost? You know? Is it just a matter of time before this NPV goes into effect? No, no. One, we can voice our, our disdain for it. We can get out there when we hear about it. We can pay attention to our state legislatures and listen to see if they're talking about this. And then we can go out and we can make a lot of noise and let them know that we do not want the NPV. Okay, it's not a done deal. And on top of that, 
there is some question as to the constitutionality of the NPV. But before I get into that, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, I'm going to let you know exactly why this may be unconstitutional. If any of you are like me, um, there's a big concern with regards to privacy censorship uh, when it comes to social media. And throughout the course of this show and and the previous episodes, you've heard me talk about uh, different alternatives to the big tech companies that are out there. So um, just kind of reiterating what we've talked about before, but there are alternatives for you if you're concerned about censorship, demonetization, things of that nature, if you're a creator, when it comes to like Facebook and Twitter. And the first one I want to talk about, I've mentioned it right before the break, was Minds.com. If you love, you know, having control and not worrying about being censored, this is where you need to be because what I love about Minds.com is that there is no worry about demonetization, censorship, or unfair treatment, um, which we've come to expect from Facebook and the other social networks. Minds is a, it offers a fully transparent, privacy-focused platform with no bias, hidden algorithms, or censorship. And if you're a content creator like myself, you can even upgrade to a pro account to get paid for your work, morph your channel into a full-blown website with your own subdomain or custom domain, newsfeed, logo, theme, categories, and a footer. You see, Minds allows you to leverage the blockchain and crypto payments to eliminate the middlemen and maintain autonomy over your revenue streams. So definitely, if you're tired of Facebook holding you back, set up your Minds.com account and be sure to subscribe to the Common Sense Podcast channel today by simply searching for at Common Sense Podcast. Next up, Twitter. Twitter is huge and uh, it's very divisive in this country. And again, it has a lot of the same issues that plague Facebook. Well... Good news is, if you haven't heard, there is an alternative. Um, There's actually two. Um, One's Gab Social and the other's Parler. I have actually kind of really gravitated towards Parler. I like that one a whole lot better. Um, You know, what I love about Parler is that basically it is Twitter without having to worry about being shadow banned, shut down, pushed to the side, worry about your post getting out to people that are following you and getting your message out there. So I would definitely recommend uh, checking out Minds.com and Parler. Um, you can uh, get Parler in particular uh, on the Apple Apps Store or Google Play. And once you've downloaded that to your phone, make sure you set up your account and be sure to connect to me by searching for Common Sense Podcast. And now let's go back to the show. All right, everyone. So prior to the break, I talked to you real quickly about there is hope because there is some thoughts that perhaps the NPVC or NPV national popular vote is uh, unconstitutional. Now I came to know about this is that I stumbled across an article entitled, appropriately enough, Why the National Popular Vote Compact is Unconstitutional. And it was written by Norman R. Williams in the BYU Law Review. Now, this is volume 2012, issue 5, article 3. So it is a few years behind as far as, you know, current stats and numbers. But in its essence, what it does is it goes through and and talks about a lot of what we've covered already. It is a law publication. So um, 
you do have to pay attention. I'm not a lawyer. I don't consider myself to be one. And but if you'll if you go through and read it, just slow bits and pieces and chunks, um, it's very digestible and uh, and it makes some very 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 valid points, which I'm going to cover here in a second. In fact, what I'll do is I'll post a link to it on the uh, Common Sense Podcast Minds.com fans channel. So if you want to go through and look at it, you can find it there um, later on today. The article starts off reviewing and covering a lot of what I've already shared with you today, so I'm not going to rehash that here. But of note, in the intro, he says, quote, In this article, I argue that the National Popular Vote Compact, NPV, NPVC, as, as it's <clears throat> been referenced uh, today, violates the Presidential Elections Clause of Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Although the text of the clause seems to give states unlimited power to select the manner in which each state's presidential electors are chosen, a close reading of U.S. history suggests the need and propriety of limiting the scope of state authority under the clause. Not one state, either in the wake of ratification or at any time thereafter, has ever sought to appoint its presidential election electors on the basis of votes cast outside the state as the National Popular Vote Compact requires. If opponents wish to abolish the Electoral College, the sole constitutionally proper mechanism for doing so is a federal constitutional amendment, not an interstate compact negotiated by a handful of states. Now, you may not know this, and I for one didn't know this, but historically, the Electoral College has long been the target of criticism and contempt. Now, in 2012, when this paper was written, he mentioned that of the 11,000 constitutional amendments proposed to date in Congress, over 1,000 of them have dealt with the Electoral College, and many of those have sought to implement a direct popular vote election of the president. In fact, bills proposing a constitutional amendment to abolish Electoral College are routinely introduced in every single Congress. Nevertheless, these proposals have all failed to pass. And additionally, it should be noted that it's been over 40 years since Congress seriously considered a constitutional amendment abolishing the college. Now, while popular support for the constitutional reform seems to be widespread, honestly, so far it's been really shallow in its ability to overcome the high hurdle of Article 5. But, as we all know, there are many who are dissatisfied with the failure of Congress to pass a constitutional amendment abolishing the Electoral College and... uh, what happens when you're upset with Congress? Well, of course, you form a, re, uh, a reform group and several uh, reform-minded citizens, including three law professors, Akhil Amar, Vikram Amar, and Robert Bennett, uh, came up with what they called a novel way to transform the manner in which the nation elects the president. And that novel idea would basically avoid the time-consuming and the daunting process required by our Constitution uh, to actually create and and get past a constitutional amendment. Now, no big surprise, this is the NPV or the NPVC. On a quick side note, I thought that you might want to know a little bit about the three individuals that I just mentioned. So in doing a little bit of a a history search here, um, I found out that Akhil Amar, he is a Yale law professor. From everything I've read about him, he appears to be a very leftist liberal. In 2016, I bet you can guess which candidate he backed. Yeah, he strongly supported Hillary Clinton, which means he's upset. He's upset that his candidate lost because she won the popular vote. But the Constitution prevented her from taking it 
the rest of the way, which again, that is a protection for the people. So in a sense, he's butthurt, guys. Um, his upbringing, he was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which if you know anyone from Ohio, that's hard for me to say uh, on this broadcast. But he was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, and at the time his parents were studying medicine uh, from the University of Michigan, which has shown itself to be a very left-leaning and liberal school, which today most colleges are, but I mean, honestly, they're, they're more to the left than, than even some of the other ones out there. So needless to say, good old Akil, he was brought up and educated and taught and, and works in the education, higher education system. So um, we know where he's coming from. Next up, Vikram Amar. Well, Vikram Amar is Dean and Iwan Foundation Professor of Law at the University of Illinois College of Law. Prior to his current position, he was a professor of law for many years at law schools in the University of California system, most recently the UC Davis School of Law. And as far as his educational background, um, he earned his bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley and his Juris Doctor from Yale Law School. Okay, so we're seeing a pattern here. Now, on to number three. I saved the best for, th for last, okay? This guy, holy cow, Robert Bennett. Um, as I read a little bit about what I found out about him, I want you to just listen to, see if you can pick up a pattern of, of, some, of one word in particular, okay? So Mr. Robert Bennett is an American attorney and partner at Schertler and Anah. Honorado LLP, a law firm, and he is best known for representing uh, President Bill Clinton during the Lewinsky scandal. Bennett is also famous for representing Judith Miller in the Valerie Plame CIA leak grand jury investigation case, Casper Weinberger, the U.S. Secretary of Defense during the Iran-Contra scandal of the 1980s, Clark Clifford in the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, scandal, and Paul Wolfowitz in the World Bank scandal. He received his Bachelor's of Arts degree from Georgetown University in 1961, his Bachelor of Laws degree from Georgetown in 1964, and his Master of Laws degree from Harvard Law School in 1965. Now, in particular with Mr. Bennett, did you hear how many times he was involved in scandals? Now, he wasn't involved, but he was defending people that were involved in scandals. So I think it's safe to say that in a nutshell, the authors of the NPVC appear to be three lawyers who are very much leftists and that have an agenda to tell each of you that your vote doesn't matter for president and that only the popular vote of the people matters and that the rest of us should just shut up. Remember from what I told you earlier in the show that this national popular vote only requires the nine most densely populated states. That's it. Those are the only ones that are needed to determine who should be our president. Nine. That leaves out the voices of the voters in 41 remaining states, completely being disenfranchised when it comes to their votes, guys. It doesn't matter because these leftist elitists believe they know better than the majority of Americans. Now, um, back to this paper, okay? The remainder of it is split up into four sections, and again, I would recommend it heavily to anyone who really wants a deep legal understanding of what we're facing as Americans. And I am not, I am not a lawyer, like I mentioned. Um, but if you take time and read it, you, you can understand what he's going at. So just so you know what each part's about, and then you can, like I said, find the link on our, 
ourminds.com fans uh, channel. In part one, he briefly describes the presidential election process, the criticism of it, and how the NPVC seeks to transform the process. In part two, he then explores the debates at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, revealing that the framers expressly rejected the direct popular election of the president and instead settled on the Electoral College as a way to preserve the influence of the states, particularly smaller states, in the selection of the president. Part three covers the manner in which the states exercise their constitutional authority to select presidential electors in the first few elections following the ratification of the Constitution. And lastly, part four, and this is the one that probably most people want to read uh, in particular, but the other three really kind of explain a lot and lead up to this. But in part four, he explores the ramifications of the constitutionality of the NPVC. Wow. (laughs) We've covered a lot today, guys. And if your head is swimming... You can always go back and listen to the episode again, and I hope if you do that you will take notes along the way. And please be sure to share this on your social media and with your friends. Spread it around because there is obviously a lack of understanding as to what the the Electoral College is, how much of a blessing it is to us as citizens of America, and that it literally protects the sanctity of our elections. As always, I really appreciate you tuning in and ask that you uh, help spread the the message of the podcast, this episode, the rest of it. Get it out there, please. Please get it out there. And and also, if you would, share it. Like I said, share it with your friends. Give us a five-star rating. Um, Subscribe. You know, over on Podbean, we have the ability to uh, subscribe, follow the podcast, and become a patron. I've already talked about that. And if you'd like to get in touch with me to leave a comment about the show, I am on all the major social media platforms. Email. You can send a message to me at commonsensepodcast at fastmail.com. On Facebook, yes, we're still on Facebook. Do a search for the Common Sense Podcast. Twitter, it's Commsense Podcast. Instagram, common.sense.podcast. And if you're moving your things over to the better social media platforms, in my opinion. You can find us on Minds.com and Parlor by simply searching for Common Sense Podcast. Lastly, before I say goodbye for this week, I want to uh, remind you that in today's world, there is nothing more uncommon than common sense. Until next time, America, this is Dr. Matt.